Well, I don't want to assume that all of us walk into a room like this with the same view of God. But one thing I would like to assume is that all of us, or at least all of us who are willing to at least entertain the thought that there is a God, would like to know how to please Him. Like, if there is a God, yeah, I'd like to know what makes Him happy. Over the centuries, there have been, since Jesus was here on planet Earth, there has been some confusion on this matter. What is it that we need to do to please God? And things came to a head about 500 years ago at the Reformation. If you're not familiar with church history, that was a moment where there was debate. Okay, is it like paying penance? Is it doing the sacraments? Is that what makes God happy? And, and a bunch of guys got together and said, no, no. It's by grace through faith that we're made right with God. And so what's happened since then inside of Protestant churches, Protestant churches, is that we have, for the most part, what we often talk about is what we don't need to do in the ways that we can't please God. Okay, So often in an evangelical church like this, you'll hear things like, okay, it's not about good behavior. And it's not about morality. It's not about living up to doing all of these, this list of things that appeases God. You tracking with me? Yeah. It's not about that. It's not about religious activity, you know, doing the right things in, the, in a service or the order of service. Or it's not about even like prayers and confession and all that stuff. Not that that stuff's bad, but that's not what ultimately pleases God. We also talk about like even praying itself. You know, it's not about having the right formulas and specific words that we say. But what's interesting, coming back to the question of, you know, pleasing God is that God in His Word, and actually in this scripture that we've already read in Hebrews 11, talks about a way for us to please God. It actually says it the other way around. It says, without this thing, it is impossible to please God. And so I want you to read it again with me. Let's go to Hebrews 11. We're going to spend a bit of time here in Hebrews. So Hebrews 11. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one from up on the shelves and read along or on your phone. But we will be spending most of our time in Hebrews. So we'd really encourage you to read along with me because we won't have it on the screen. Hebrews is always a little tricky to find. It's right at the back of your Bible. Okay, Hebrews 11. And where I'd love to ask you to go is to verse 6. And what you see here is that it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Him being God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Okay, so it's saying here for us that without faith it is impossible to please God. And what that means, conversely, that with faith it is possible to please God. And so we're like, okay, cool. What's faith? Like, what is faith? Perhaps when we say the word faith, you have ideas of like the team building activity where you do the trust fall. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody done the trust fall? Yeah. That's where like your team, your co-workers, usually it's done at like a business-like trust building thing, right? Your team, teammates on your work team will get around behind you and you close your eyes and you fall back believing by faith that they will catch you, okay? 
So that's a, that's a trust fall. Maybe that's the sort of thing that you think that faith is. Or maybe you think of it more as a, a wistful sentiment. For example, you may have faith that your sports team, even though they're horrible, is going to have an incredible season. Like, I've got faith, man. This is going to be the best one yet. Is that faith or is that just kind of wistful thinking? Is that like a dream that you have for your team? And here I think we're starting to touch on what is a problem. You see, faith is something that we need to please God. Yes, obviously. But we actually struggle to really know what it is. I think it's a little bit like grasping oil. It's like you almost get your hands on it and then it just slips out. Like it's hard. It eludes us. Faith, what it is. But what's interesting is if you go back up to where Eileen started our reading in Hebrews 11.1, is that you'll see there actually is a pretty succinct definition there. Read it with me. Hebrews 11.1. It says this. Now faith is the... When it says... when. It says, now faith is. I, I get excited when I see a line by that, like that, by the way, because it's like definition coming, right? And it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So it's got like two lines to it here. And this is where we could spend all of our time this afternoon talking about how it's the assurance of things hoped for. What is assurance? We could dig in to the original language and see that assurance is like concrete support, foundation, sitting under. All of those words are captured in this word assurance. And then we could go on to talking about the conviction of things not seen and, and look into the original language for this word conviction and it would tell us proof, evidence, rebuke. It would almost like rebuking to say, okay, well, it's not that, but the evidence points towards it being this. But I can already see you guys kind of glazing over while I talk like that. And that's a little bit because there's a bit of tension in this definition. We look at it, it's just a bunch of words. It almost seems like actually these words are opposed to each other because it says assurance of something hoped for, like a foundation, a, a concrete thing of something hoped for. Can that really happen? And then it talks about conviction of something unseen. How can you be convicted of something that's unseen? And so what the beauty of Hebrews 11, that's good, thanks, Kyle. The beauty is that it doesn't just give us this high-level definition. It doesn't just give us verse 1. It actually gives us the rest of the chapter. And what I love about that is it's a bunch of stories. It's a bunch of illustrations and examples. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a visual person. And so what follows from here is life after life showing us of what faith actually is and what it actually looks like. And that's why Hebrews 11 is sometimes called by people inside the church, the hall of faith. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but it's a, it's a little play on words to sound like the hall of fame, the hall of faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 is sometimes called. Because it lists out all of these biblical characters. None of them are perfect, but they're all examples of people who lived by faith. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to look at a bunch of these different characters. Not all of them. That would take a long time. There's a lot of them in here. But what we're going to do is, as we look at them, we're going to ask this question. How can we, like these who have gone before us, live lives of faith? How can we look at these guys and glean what faith is and and glean some inspiration to live the life that God's called us to? So it starts out with a few examples. We've got Abel and Enoch. You heard that in the reading today. And then it moves on to Noah. Now what's interesting to think about is Abel... 
and Enoch are great characters, both of them. We could spend time talking about either of them today and learn from their lives, but we don't actually know a lot about their lives. We've only got a couple of lines in the Bible written about either of those characters. Whereas Noah, we know a lot more about. Noah, we've got more extensive uh, knowledge from the Bible about his life and what it looked like. And one of the other beautiful things about Noah is that he gives us a window into what a life lived of faith, lived in faith, looks like in a godless generation. And I think that's good for us because when we often look at the world around us, we're like, wow, we live in a really godless time to be alive. And so with that in mind, I actually want to give you a little context for Noah's life by flipping all the way back to Genesis 6. So I'm going to turn to Genesis 6. You're welcome to turn there with me. Maybe keep a finger back in Hebrews 11 because we will be going back. But Genesis 6, this is like right at the start of the Bible. And what you find in verse 5 through 8 is a picture of the context of Noah's life. Read it with me. It says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a sweeping indictment, by the way. Keep reading with me, though. It says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the earth, sorry, from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so as we look at Noah's life, I'm reminded that sometimes we struggle with being historical snobs. What I mean by that is that we have this ability, oftentimes, to look at our world, look at our context, and feel like we live in the darkest moment of history. And it's fair, the reasons that we think that. Like, we look at the world around us, like, you hear of tsunamis, earthquakes, you hear of bushfires, you hear of a climate change, all of this stuff that's kind of just seems like it's the world turning on its head. And then you hear of things like viruses spreading across the world. You hear of, uh, you hear of injustice. You hear of racism. You hear of debates on what sexuality is and marriage is. You look at politics and impeachments and, and, and Brexit and all this stuff, right? And we're like, wow, what a broken world in which we live. We must be living at the darkest moment in history. But what I'd like to highlight to you is as much as we live in a dark moment of history, there have been very many dark moments of history throughout human life. And possibly, possibly, this one of Noah's is the darkest of all of them. Because what we're deducing from this text is that every person was wicked except for Noah and his household. Every human on the face of the earth had turned and rebelled against God. He alone is standing against the storm, if, if you want to put it that way. And as we read on, what we see of Noah is he's exceptional in his generation. Look at verse 9. The Lord, uh, sorry, verse 9, here we go. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I read those and I think, wow. I hope that those would be words that maybe would define me. <clears throat> that I would walk 
with God. And that's how I would be known. Now, I want to just, little side note here. It says that he was blameless in his generation. What does that mean? Does that mean he was perfect? No. I mean, if you read on the story of Noah, you'll actually see some sin coming out in Noah's life. After the flood, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Noah. After the flood, after he, he comes back down to earth and, and the boat lands and they go and repopulate the earth, Noah has this moment where he gets drunk and he's, it's just it's a mess. Noah was not perfect. But when you look into the language here and it says blameless in his generation, what that means is undefiled. As in he went against the grain of his culture. And what I'd like to highlight to us this afternoon is a few things. I want to point out three things, three reasons that Noah is a wonderful hero of the faith to us. The first is the thing we've just been talking about. By faith, Noah connected with God. Even though his world and his culture and his generation rejected God, he connected with God. And that's one reason that we can look at him and be like, yeah, awesome, Noah, that's great. And so we've looked at that in, in here in Genesis chapter 6. I think you get the point. He made a connection with God when nobody else did. But I'm going to ask you to turn back, like I promised, to Hebrews 11. You guys are getting your uh, Bible drill in here today. Some practice at finding spots. I should have kept my place. Hebrews 11. And we're going to look at verse 7, which specifically talks about Noah again. What it says here... In verse 7 is this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I mean, you guys are familiar with the story here. Noah doesn't just connect with God. He hears a message from God to go and to build a boat. And he goes fully into that. He doesn't like be like, okay, God, I'll do that in a few years. Or I'll do that in the evenings and weekends. No, he gives himself, he devotes himself fully to the building of this boat for years. Builds this humongous boat, even though he didn't really know what a boat was, in the middle of nowhere, believing that what God said was true. And this flood does come, and he saves himself and all this livestock and animals with him. They go and they finally, like we said, land on Mount Ararat. And they go from there and repopulate the earth. And, and God kind of brings this regeneration, this renewal after them. But as we think about this story and as we look at this verse, the second thing I think worthy of highlighting is that by faith, Noah listened to God. Look at verse 7. It says, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And the reason I point this out is because there is a real danger for any of us to acknowledge God and then to ignore Him. To be like, oh, I'm going to connect with God. Yeah, God's my God and I'm just going to keep doing my thing. Classic example of this is King Saul from the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with him, he was the first king of Israel. And he is this guy who's like, yep, God, I'm yours. I'll be a good king. I'm going to follow your leading, except I'll do less and less and less. And his life just spirals into an utter train wreck. Because there were sections of who he was that God didn't have access to. So what happens with us is sometimes we give our lives to God, but he doesn't really have our all. We're like, okay, God, you can, 
I'll be your follower. I'm a God follower. I'll be a Christian. But you can't have my work life. Or you, you can have every area of my life except for my hobbies or my finances or my time. I don't, I don't know what it is. But sometimes we, we live like that. Or sometimes we're just those Christians who are so busy and distracted that listening to God isn't going to ever happen. The point is this. Noah was still and connected with God to the point that he heard God's voice clearly, very clearly. Clearly enough to know that building a boat was what he had to do. By faith, Noah listened to God. He engaged with God. The third thing I'd like to highlight, and maybe this is the most important, is that by faith, Noah didn't just connect with God. He didn't just listen to God. Noah obeyed God. He obeyed God's direction. And this is the rubber hits the road part of the message, right? This is where we see faith in action. Faith wasn't just Noah connecting. It wasn't just him hearing the God who had created him. It was stepping out recklessly, at least by the world around him standard, into the unknown. Like he steps out and he's like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build this boat. I'm going to put all my effort and energy, my life, into believing what God has said is true. Faith is the action of believing God over and above the physical evidence. That's what Noah shows us. So to use an earlier definition that we had from Hebrews 11, what we can now do is take the life of Noah and transpose it back on Hebrews 1.1. Remember Hebrews 1.1? It talked about the assurance and the conviction. Let's put that on Noah's life. Look at this. We can say something like this. Faith for Noah was the assurance that God's word to him was true and the conviction that the yet unseen floodwaters were real. That was faith. For Noah, you see, faith is much more than a feeling. It's much more than a hunch. It's much more than a hoping. Faith is trust in action. Let me say that one more time. Faith is trust in action. Now, why would I use the word trust? Well, the reason I I use the word trust is it was highlighted to me in my study this week. There's one theologian who, who basically said this. The word faith is sometimes used today to refer to an almost irrational commitment to something, in spite of strong evidence to the contrary. A sort of irrational decision to believe something that we are quite sure is not true. Basically this idea of a leap of faith, you know, this idea that faith is just a a blind and reckless thing. And he goes on to helpfully make the point of saying, hey, the word trust, the modern English word trust, maybe has stronger ties to the biblical word faith than the modern English word faith does. Are you with me? And so he says, trust is a helpful word for us. And so using that, we can come back to Noah and say, Noah, yes, shows us faith in that he shows us trust in action, what that looks like. But there's a danger in all of this. And the danger is this, is that we look at the life of Noah or anybody else in this list of heroes of the faith. And we look at them and we think, okay, there's the bar. I need to be like Noah. I need to jump over the bar to be as as holy as Noah. I need to listen to God. I need to connect with God. I need to obey God. I need to do all the things. And man, if I I just try hard enough, I can be 
like Noah. And when we think about life that way, what we start to understand pretty quickly is that the bar is actually pretty high. We start to see pretty quickly our shortcomings in connecting with God. And we see our shortcomings in listening and obeying God. And what happens when we start to think of faith that way, of saying, okay, I've just got to get a bit more of this faith so I can be like Noah. Faith becomes this strange commodity. It's like this jar, mystical jar in our life that we've got to fill somehow with more of it to do better. And that's just a strange way of thinking about it. And what we think is thoughts like this, well, if I had as much faith as Noah, maybe I too could weather the storms of life and make God happy because he weathered the storms that came and, and, and he ultimately made God happy. All, I say all of this to, to highlight a point. When we look at Noah or any other hero of the Bible, like a David or a Joshua or a Gideon or whoever it may be, and we say they're setting the bar and I just need to try hard to be like them, what we're doing essentially is setting a bar and what will happen is we will either be inflated with pride. We'll look at Noah and be like, oh yeah, I'm connecting with God, I'm listening, I'm, I'm, I'm obeying God. And we'll be inflated with pride and say, yeah, I'm doing it. Or secondly, the opposite happens. We look at that and we're like, oh man, I am not as good as Noah. If only I could listen or connect with God, I, I'm just, I'm really stinking it up. And we're overwhelmed with guilt and shame. So we can't look at Noah this way, or any of these heroes. You see, what's wrong with that scenario, and whenever we do that, is that essentially we're putting ourselves at the center of the story. It makes us, it's all about us in that scenario, saying, yeah, I need to do this, I need to be this good, I need to impress God. And when we put ourselves at the, in the center of the story, we're essentially trying to make ourselves the hero. We become the main object, if you would, of the story. Now this is where object is actually a really helpful word for us. Because faith is not about a mystical force. Faith is actually centered on an object. And I'll give you a clue, the object isn't us. You see, Noah didn't just sit around thinking, well, I've got to get some more of this faith thing. God's told me I need to build this, this boat, so I'm going to muster up, I'm going to white-knuckle it and get some, uh, get some faith going here and build this boat. No, what we see in, Mo it's in Moses, Noah's life is what was him looking by faith to something outside of himself, to God. You see, God was the object of his faith. And the beautiful thing is that we now live in the New Testament time. Jesus has come. He's died for the sins of the world. He's been revealed as the Son of God. And so now we have an object even more specific than God of our faith. And that is Jesus. How do I know that Jesus is to be the object of our faith and not ourselves? Well, I've read ahead in Hebrews. You see, if you go to Hebrews 12, it talks about this. Go to Hebrews 12, verse 1 with me. You see, it talks about all of these heroes of the faith, and then it says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by the way, 
I'm not exactly sure what this means, but at a guess, I think it means that all of these people that have lived these lives of faith in front of us are actually maybe peering into our world and cheering us on. There's debate over what that means. But let us, it says, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we're like, okay, yeah, okay, got to do these things. But listen to the key, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Jesus is the object. Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous preacher from the 1800s, actually talked about faith and this passage of Hebrews 12.2. And he said this, Our life is found in, and he quotes Hebrews 12.2 here, looking unto Jesus. Not in looking to our own faith. By faith, all things become possible to us. Listen to this. Yet the power is not in the faith, but in the God in whom the faith relies. That's the key. It, the power is not in the faith, but in the God in whom the faith relies. We don't, through tinkering with our faith or hyper-focusing on it, somehow improve this faith that we have. Christ has to be the main focus, the object of our faith. So Jesus is who the story of Noah should point us towards. It shouldn't be, hey, look at Noah, be more like him. No, it should point us and say, I need Jesus to be my Noah. To rescue me from the flood of sin and death that is coming to destroy me. And without his rescue, I'm done for. The beautiful thing about Jesus is as we look at his life, he did all the things Noah did even more perfectly. He connected with God. He listened to God. He obeyed God even to the point of death. And what this means is that by His grace, when we struggle to do the things that Noah did so faithfully, connecting with God, listening to Him, obeying Him, we have His forgiveness. So what's fun here is that we can actually come back to Hebrews 11 verse 6. Remember we talked about at the beginning saying, without faith it is impossible to please God. What I'd love to propose we do now is actually read that again, but take out the word faith and substitute in there the object of our faith, Jesus, Christ. And when I read that with the word Christ substituted in, it says this, without Christ, it is impossible to please God. That's the point. That's the point, not just of this story or of this chapter, but of the whole Bible. It's the point of this message today. Without Christ, it is impossible to please God. So now, if you're a Christian, we can have Christ to be the object of our faith, and we can now live the way that He's called us to. You see, as we live with our gaze, our eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, what we'll start to find is that our life will now start to resemble more and more the good parts of Noah's life. You see, Noah lived in a godless culture, and as we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, Christ will empower us to be also unfazed by the godless culture that is around us. 
Noah connected with God. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, He will give us the grace and, and, and wisdom to know how to prioritize connecting with God in a similar way. Noah listened and obeyed God. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, He will give us grace to listen and to obey Him. Noah made it through the worst storm that the world had ever seen. As we keep our eyes on Jesus, Christ will give us the strength to trust Him through the storms of life as they come. And all of you know those storms do come, right? Noah was God's agent of new life on the destroyed world. Think about it. Noah got off that ark and he was sent out by God to bring new life into that world, to multiply, to fill the earth, to, to, to start to look after it and cultivate it. And as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the object of our faith, Christ can empower us to be his agents of renewal wherever he places us. In our families, our workplaces, our schools, circles of friends, neighborhoods. So as we reflect on all of these things, there's two questions I'd like for us still to consider. The first one is this. Do you have Christ as the object of your faith? And if your answer is no, my question to follow that up is, why not? What do you have? What is the object of your faith? You see, we all have faith in something. There's something that we're living for. There's something that has captured our hearts. If your hope or your faith is built on something, some sort of object, what is that object? Because any object other than Christ will ultimately fall. For some of us, maybe it's our career. And I'd just like to kindly but firmly remind you that one meeting, and that can be gone. For some of us, it may be our finances, a nest egg, security. And you know those things can be taken in an instant. For others of us, it may be our health and our physical condition. But again, with one slip or one doctor's appointment, it can be done for. Maybe for some of us, it's our relationship. Maybe a relationship with a significant other. But again... That can be gone so quickly, unexpectedly. Some things can fall apart or, or tragically, somebody can be taken in an instant. You see, the point I'm getting at is this. The object of our faith has to be, we're designed to have an object of our faith be transcendent. Do you know what that means? That means something that is beyond this life. Something that is eternal. If we put the object of our faith in something here that's temporary, ultimately it will always, always fail us and fall apart. And so we've got to, we're designed to have our faith placed in something more than just ourselves. More than just this life and the things of this life. The old hymn puts it well, my hope is built on nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness. Maybe for our purposes today, we could say, my faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So, 
coming back to this question that I'm asking, do you have Christ as the object of your faith? Maybe you're a Christian and you're like, actually, I don't know what I do right now. Well, now's the moment to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. And he's going to be quick to forgive. That's great. Experience that. Like, do that. Make, make a point of getting things right there. If you're not sure of where you stand with God tonight, this afternoon, it's a moment for you to make that decision for the first time. I'm not sure if there's anybody here who doesn't believe, but I'm going to preach it anyway. I'm going to say, hey, if you don't believe, what better Sunday to be here than to hear about what it means to have faith. It means to have your eyes fixed on Jesus. And so a prayer of repentance would simply sound like this. Jesus, I want to put my eyes on you. And I don't want to take them off. Would you forgive me of everything I've done wrong? And he will answer that prayer. He will hear that prayer. And you can experience change for the rest of your life. If that is something that you want to pray, we want to know about it. We want to celebrate that together. You cannot live the life of faith in isolation. So let us celebrate that with you. Come and talk to me after the service or even during our prayer time in our response time, if that's you. Second question. After we ask is Christ the object of our faith? Is this. Are you seeing the evidence of Christ being the object of your faith? This is where we get to look at our lives and say, okay, if Christ is the object of my faith, I should be seeing some evidences of that. There were evidences in Noah's life. He was connected with God. He was listening to God. He was obeying God, even though it was pretty extreme what he was doing. And so here's a moment for you to look at your life and say, am I connecting with God? Am I listening to God? Am I obeying God? Is there an area in your life where you don't feel like you're obeying God? And as you hold your life up and, and, and look at it and say, God, am I really seeing the evidences of you being the object of my faith? If His Holy Spirit brings an area of conviction, make a beeline to the cross with that thing. Take it to Jesus and say, God, here's, here's my struggle. I'm struggling to trust you with my finances. Man, I'm really struggling to connect with you, God. Every time I pray, it feels like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. God, I'm struggling to trust you with this person at work or this family member who I, I keep praying for and I don't feel like you're hearing me. I don't know what it is for you today. But what I'm saying is let's find these areas and just take them to the cross. It's okay for us to look at Noah's life and see that he glorified God. And then look at our own lives and ask God to do this also. So remembering all of these things, I just simply want to remind us that Christ is all. He is our Savior. He is to be the object of our faith. He is where we are to keep our eyes fixed. Otherwise, we will find ourselves sinking into the floodwaters of life. Got one last story for you. Remember the story of Peter. He's on a boat with the other disciples. They're in a storm. Jesus is nowhere to be seen. All of a sudden, they see this figure literally walking on water towards them across the ocean. And they freak out at first, and then they're like, wait a sec, that's, that's Jesus. And Peter, being Peter, what does he do? Oi! If that's you, let me come out. And Jesus says, come on. And what happens? You guys know the story. He puts his eyes on Jesus. 
And he steps out of the boat and he literally starts walking towards Jesus across the water. Thankfully, we're told the next part of the story because it's very pertinent to our message today. And that is that he takes his eyes off Jesus and he sees the wind and the waves, the water all around him. And he begins to sink and he cries out, Jesus, help me, Lord. And Jesus reaches out and what does he say to him? Oh, you of little faith. It's all about, faith is about keeping our eyes on Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so I want to encourage you today, man, I don't know where you're at, but even for myself, I'm like, wow, I overcomplicate this so often. God, just help me to keep my eyes fixed on you. I am like Peter. I do look down often. But today, now is a moment for us to look at Jesus remembering that without our eyes fixed on Him, without Christ, it is impossible to please God. But with Christ, all things are possible. It is possible to please God. I'm going to pray for us. God, we are encouraged that life and being a Christian and walking a life of faith is not about us measuring up. We're thankful that what pleases you is faith, and ultimately what pleases you is Christ. And so God, we just as a group of friends together today, want to say, God, help us, please, to keep our eyes fixed, locked on you. We're sorry that we overcomplicate things, that we make faith Maybe more big and dramatic than it needs to be. God, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. So God, help us now. Help us to even know how to respond now as we have these next moments to sit, to stand, to sing, to pray, to listen. Just help us to take the right posture and to hear from you, God. Thank you. Amen.